Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. It is often said that people should not talk about politics or religion. And given we have spent the last 14 months breaking the first rule, it's about time that we got around to breaking the second. Tonight, we examine the church in Wales, its future and its recent past, whilst also asking the question about what the relationship between religion and politics is, as well as the relationship between church and nation. Joining me and Rich tonight is Theo Davis-Lewis, Chief Political Commentator at The National and friend of the podcast. Hello, Theo. Hello. And we've got the Reverend Alan Edwards, Chief Executive of Katyn, uh, which is an organisation that brings different churches and religious traditions together in Wales. Hello, Alan. Hi, good to be with you. Thank you very much for joining us. So we'll start off talking about one of the more peculiar controversies of the pandemic period. Theo, you wrote in your column last week, as well as interviewing the Bishop of Bangor, about, well, not all, all about, but somewhat about uh, what happened with the Bishop of St. David's. Could you talk a little bit about that and what led you to have your interview with the Bishop? It's a really interesting one in the sense that Bishop Joanna Penberthy, Bishop of St. David's, made that very infamous tweet now in, I think, March this year, where she said, never, never, never trust a Tory, uh, which obviously is totally inappropriate uh, for a bishop uh, to be saying, in my view. And I think she had some hashtags associated with her Twitter name, you know, things like get the Tories out, you know, plenty of people have them, but they're not bishops, are they? So that was the, the controversy. And then there was that pylon that happened, really, since, since uh, Bishop Joanna made those tweets. And we had the letter from the Secretary of State, Simon Hart, who obviously thought, deep down probably thought this is brilliant you know another chance to attack not an established organization of course because the church is not established but attach you know attack an organization that seems to be going against conservative values and so on wrote to the archbishop of canterbury shouldn't really have done that but he did it anyway the bishop of Bangor, uh andy john in the absence of an archbishop of wales uh wrote back as the senior bishop um, a very, very measured and um, conciliatory letter apologising. And since then, we haven't really heard anything. And that was the inspiration really for this interview, which I didn't think I would probably have, but I thought it's worth asking, as I normally do. And I, I normally get ignored or um, some press officer replies to me. And after they probably go through my columns and think this guy's too risky. Uh, but uh, they agreed to it. And that was the basis of the interview. But alongside that tweet that that was the main basis to ask but hopefully what comes out in the interview is that there are more profound questions actually uh, for the church in wales to to ask and then answer as well as as, as you said in your introduction matt generally about you know, the state of religion in wales the connections between religion and politics and you know what are the roles of those institutions in wales today Aled, what was your response to the fiore about the tweets? Well, I, I obviously know Bishop Joe very well. I've worked with her. Um, she chairs up uh, one of the Anglican groups, uh, the global group that I'm a member of. That's the group that looks at issues of social justice um, and looks at issues around poverty across the world. So I know her very well and I know of her passions. She has rightly apologised for what she tweeted. But, you know, we Christians have got this really inconvenient thing called forgiveness. And, you know, once you've apologised for something and you said sorry, it becomes an imperative that um, you actually accept that apology, accept the consequences and move on. 
But I think politics has yet to catch up with that peculiar concept, unless, of course, it's their own sins, which are very, very different. And when I tend to look at what's happening in politics across the UK, my suspicion is that God is smiling and saying, I've got less of a problem with the bishop than I have with politics. Just going to quote directly from Theo's article one second. The Bishop of, of Bangor said, we've always interfered and we always will. And we will continue to interfere where we see injustice, where we see wrong. And when we see things that the Christian faith has something to say about. That seems like quite a confident and political statement for, for a national institution that isn't always seen as being a massive political player. Is this a start of a rejuvenated activism in the church, Alad? Well, it's part of what we've done, particularly since devolution. You have to remember that I was one of the individuals that started the campaign to have a, a National Assembly back in 1997. And a group of clergy campaigned for the National Assembly. And I think it was Leighton Andrews who dubbed us as Yes Ministers, uh, which caused a, a, quite a stir at the time. And it was very much for many of us a part of building social justice. It was looking out for the poor. It was trying to do what we would call in faith terms, the kingdom. And that flowed from a dynamic that Bishop Rowan Williams uh, was chair of at the time in Wales, a moral society. You know, it's always extraordinary for us for church, uh, in the church that people find it rather odd that we should speak out for justice. It's something that churches have always done, but it's sometimes it rattles the cages of politicians who don't like to be told off. Theo, we've had conversations about this, and, and when we talked, you said that you didn't think the Bishop of Bangor was quite as radical as people who had been the most senior bishop in Wales previously. Did that come across in, in the interview with him? Well, I, I think there's two points. You know, first of all, I completely agree with Alad's comment about apologising and saying sorry, uh, because on the on the on the politician point, politicians now when they say sorry, it means something totally different mm. to what it meant 20 years ago. And actually, lots of the things that happen in politics today wouldn't have happened 20 years ago without them resigning. Uh, so that's the first point. And actually, to go back to your point, Matt, about maybe a, a new kind of political activism from the church, I I think of Bishop Andy like a political figure. And I, Justin Welby, I saw an interview he gave to GQ, I think it was about a year ago now, and he has to behave politically to, to negotiate and to mediate with people that he doesn't like dealing with. So there's that very fine line. He's not necessarily a political figure with a capital P. To your question, Matt, on Bishop Andy, I think he is probably, the sense I had, was a, was a bishop that recognised the times that he was in. So Barry Morgan is the obviously the famous example of you know a radical bishop who was speaking archbishop who was speaking out on devolution you know chairing pro devolution groups that was the big question the big picture issue that Andy John I think would be happy for the church to speak out on but there's a very very fine line then on the smaller political issues you know getting involved in party politics I think Bishop Andy talked about as well which is what. Bishop Joanna seemed to be getting involved with when she said never trust a Tory. That's what the church has to stay away from, because otherwise you become a partisan pressure group in some sense. But I think for me, and I, and I, I want to make clear to the listeners as well, if you read the interview and the, and the column, it's probably my, my two most positive articles I've ever written. Because you go through all my archives, they're absolutely depressing. Whatever you read, if, some, <laughs> if something's gone wrong here, this is not good enough. Welsh politics is terrible. This 
these are really positive articles and I'm not, you know, I'm not, I don't really describe myself as a Christian. I mean, for all my, for all my sins, but I, I'm happy to be positive about something if it's warranted. And I like to be fair. And the reason I was like that is with Bishop Andy, I feel like he completely grasped the situation in front of him. And I would never, and I, and I've said that about certain political figures as well, but I think he realizes there was a crisis after what Bishop Joanna said, but the way that the church intervenes in politics, I think is totally right, but it's got to choose its moments. And I think it was actually, it was probably easier, dare I say it, it was probably easier for Archbishop Barry Morgan to intervene when there was that looming big question of more powers. Now the devolution settlement has probably been agreed cross-party there's more of a consensus and now there are more nuanced issues that you need to be very considered about pick your moments because of the climate that we're in if you say one wrong thing there's a there's a huge vitriolic pylon like that's happened to bishop joanna and that has wider reputational damage so i think bishop andy gets that and i think that was a very positive thing for the church and its followers Ale, you have a, a, degree, a good degree of experience in, in religious matters in Wales. And I wonder if you could tell us whether Barry Morgan and the other um, religious denominations in Wales, w- were they involved widely in the campaign? And was that considered controversial in any way at the time? I guess some people who wanted us to vote no found it uncomfortable. Um, I don't think there was a, a concerted um, Christian no campaign, but I think certainly those of us who felt passionately that we wanted to be part of that evolving embryonic social partnership with Welsh politics that could do things that were not possible before. Uh, we we felt, yes, that, that, that was the right thing to do. I. I would never go to a pulpit and preach it. I would never do it in the context of saying, you know, as a parish priest, I want you to do this. But I, I, I've always, in my own personal stance, whether it's of a devolution or issues to do with racial justice or refugees, I've always said, well, this is me. It's not always easy because people say, well, you have got a role in public life and, you know, you, you carry that tag. But you, I think it, People respect the fact that you speak out over certain issues. And I'm more than happy to disagree with you reasonably. I think we've now moved on from those early days where people would say, well, why are you doing this? What's the argument? Now you just get trolled and abused. Have you found, though, that uh, in the time since devolution, the arguments that were being made at de- around the time of the original devolution vote in the 1990s, have you found that the voice of religion and religious organisations in Wales has changed now, up to now, compared to how it was in the 1990s. Is there maybe a different focus? Uh, has the Senedd in a way become a place where that is a, an, another centre of gravity for um, discussions and for debate in, the, in religious circles, in the way that it has in political circles? Is there a symmetry there? Yes, there is. And what's crucial here is um, that we don't do it in a totemic, symbolic way. We now do it deeply on the level of public policy. So the primary example I'd give you recently is um, we were very involved with the Emmanuel Okona report into the disproportionate number of black and ethnic minority deaths due to COVID. And there were very strong comments there of Welsh government uh, in terms of institutional racism and institutions failing 
uh, individuals, and we said so. And you compare that with the, if I may be honest with you, the wretched civil report uh, that uh, Downing Street commissioned, um, not even asking the permission of the so-called participants to include their names on it, a complete shambles. And I compare that with the different dynamic in Wales. And that was because there was an awful lot of truth-telling. And that truth-telling flowed not only from civic partners uh, like Race Council Cymru, but it also flowed from faith groups. And that is now, I think some people don't get it, that is deeply, deeply substantial and well thought through. The, the other case I, uh, I want to highlight with you is it was the churches that started the concept of Wales being a nation of sanctuary. And living in Rhonnach uh, and Ontav, I noticed there was a new kid poster uh, out in Ponte Pied. You can see it on the A470 saying about the cost of 310,000 immigrants coming into the, the UK and you opposing um, Labour's national sanctuary concept. Well, I, I have to smile because it was me who actually thought of the idea of having a national sanctuary. And it was me that actually forwarded through the Faith Communities Forum. And I think you'll find now that a substantive policy initiative like that is very much faith-informed, but it's faith-informed on the basis of public good rather than establishment power or that sense of entitlement. You have to argue your case on the merits of the case rather than a sense of privilege. Is that is that accessibility and able to change the way that the Welsh Government operates or, or kind of what it pursue, what it chooses to pursue. Is that a different factor in Wales because Wales is a relatively young democracy and it's been built in the modern age and it doesn't come with the kind of baggage of history? Or is it just because there, there is that different dynamic of established religion and established religion religious figures in the parliament of, uh, of England, UK, compared to that not being an anywhere near comparable situation here in Wales? I'm finding increasingly that the whole relationality of politics and faith in Wales is so different now that they're beyond comparing. So the, the other example I can give you, which was a really difficult one just before Christmas, because you may remember uh, that there's a new COVID strain emerging and it was immensely hard for Welsh government. And one of the big questions at the time was whether places of worship should be closed down. And we had very robust, honest conversations with Welsh Government and said, just allow faith communities to make their own decision, inform them. And my suspicion was that because we could agree that approach together, far fewer people went and risked their lives in a communal sense. And those are the sorts of dynamics that I think people from outside Wales find really difficult to understand because... You know, if we want something badly and we have difficult conversations, what we do is we pick up the phone. So how, Theo, and I, both, I suppose this is a question to both of you. How do you think that dynamic is different than in Wales as opposed to England? Theo, you've got some uh, experience of, of how the policymaking process works in a Westminster context. Do you, do you think that there is that open and transparent relationship between faith and political organisation? Well, faith and party political organisations in, in England as there is in Wales? Well, I think one thing to to understand as well is that there aren't, I mean, uh, to your point, 
I think Richard made is that we are a relatively new democracy and we do have national institutions now. We have national think tanks. We have national politics podcasts like the one here today. We don't have as many you know, established institutions than, than other countries uh, in Britain. And that means, of course, it, it provides an opportunity for different religions to speak out. I mean, probably most notably the church in Wales because of the story that it had in in its formation, you know, it's a, it was the pinnacle I wrote of liberal Wales achievements. Uh, I think that was the, that, the story of liberal Wales is the story of the Church of Wales in some sense. And I think that has given it some power in that sense, you know, to, to speak out. Although, of course, Bishop Andy said to me, we can't rely on that now to be, no. to, be a, to be relevant in society. We need to move on and demonstrate our value. But I think it has given the likes of famously Rowan Williams, Barry Morgan, the platform that I can't really think of other institutions outside of politics that have had the same platform, even though, of course, Wales, I think, is the only country in, in Britain that doesn't have an official religion. At the end of the day, it means that you have organisations like the church speaking out. I do think, yeah, judging by some of the comments that I've seen on, on my social media, lots of Labour politicians are delighted with Bishop Andy's interview, of course, because they see another <laughs> example of clear red water. As I wrote in my um, as I wrote in my interview, of course, I think for and I genuinely I think for conservatives, I don't know whether I don't know whether there is the same respect to the church and Wales, particularly after recent events. I don't know, uh, but I, I assume that judging by the fact that the Secretary of State wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury for whatever reason, I don't know whether that gives you anecdotally an example of how Westminster-based Wales politicians and Wales-based Wales politicians, Welsh politicians, look at uh, faith. But I, I do think, and as Alan articulated very well, there, I do think there is a, a different distinctiveness to, to the relationship between Welsh uh, politics and faith. The question now, of course, I think is more, is, is what faith wants to do with it, because I do think it has an opportunity. The Archbishop of Canterbury has a very established position on speaking out, whereas you know, now there's going to be an archbishop by the end of the year. We might talk about that. There is a new opportunity, I think, to carry on previous work, but because of the culture wars that are ongoing, debates around the Synod, you know, the, the wider constitutional debates, I think you're going to see a very different kind of community of faith in Wales than perhaps you'd see elsewhere. And for me, as I've written before, although I don't go to the Church in Wales, I, I support the Church in Wales as a Welsh institution, and I think that's a good thing. I, I was going to ask, so, I mean, one very tangible way that people see religious influence, for lack of a better word, on the policymaking process in England is through the House of Lords. What do you think about the role of religious figures within the legislative process? Do you think it's, it's important, or do you think it would be better place that people took a more outside collaborative policy based uh, and, and pressure group based focus on in terms of, of, of religion and churches affecting policy? Well, I think the models for me are, are very um, contrasting. You can shout loudly on the outside and be seen and heard to shout. And you may feel good after shouting at people, but you don't get anywhere. And I think what we've discovered in Wales, particularly over the past five years, that if you have respectful conversations, even over the most difficult of issues, you can have a real impact on policy. I can give you uh, a primary example uh, of late. We had huge problems in the Midlands of England over the issue of relationships and sexuality education. 
and people were protesting outside of schools and mosques. Well, what we did in Wales, we held the conversation with the education minister in the mosque. We invited uh, communities from um, LGBTQ advocates, Stonewall, and we had the conversation. Now, that conversation is still unresolved. Uh, we've got issues about um, the Welsh government removing the rights to withdraw from certain families. But we now have in our own conversations with the education minister in particular, we will have conversations about, well, what do you do with redress? How do you balance where you used to be with Section 28? And those are things that we can do very wisely with, pol with, with policy in a way that I suspect that the parts of the UK would find really difficult to understand. Um, the other primary example, as I said, is the way in which we've shaped Wales being a nation of sanctuary. It started off uh, with me many years ago when we had the bright idea that we would train refugee doctors. Now, Wales, because of that dynamic between faith and Welsh government, probably has the best refugee doctors training scheme anywhere in the world. Uh, I don't think that we are used to having that sort of narrative and conversation in Wales, but it's so different to what my European partners, my English partners and Scottish partners would have to do in terms of more established relationships. How you keep that with a change of personnel, I think, is a big question. So Theo mentioned it, and it would be remiss of me not to, to pick up on it a little bit. Your reactions to when Simon Hart wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury would be very interesting, I think, to our listeners. Uh, Theo, do you want to start? Oh, Alec, do you well, want to start? No, Theo first. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, listen, I, I, um, I was, you know, I didn't really grasp it in the first instance because you kind of forgot I me mean, because you, you people probably if I'm honest, in the, in the general public, didn't realise that Archbishop uh, John Davis stepped down. Uh, and then the letters, you can read all the letters publicly uh, online. And if you read through the letters from Simon Hart to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and then obviously Bishop Andy, uh, clearly whatever's happened there is totally, I, I think it actually, if I was to guess, it'd probably be more ignorance than deliberate, because if it is deliberate, it's very clever. For me, I was actually more angry with, or angrier with them, Justin Welby's response, because I think it was totally out of order. And if you read the interview, Bishop Andy is very, very clear, you know, essentially saying he doesn't expect anyone, whoever they are, to intervene in matters relating to this province. And I think that was very, very clear. And people I've spoken to uh, in, in the Church in Wales, I think, are very, very angry with what the Archbishop of Canterbury did, because it was a, uh, you know, didn't need to respond. You didn't need to respond publicly. Um, and I think the way that Bishop Andy handled it very, delicately in my interview shows a lot about his approach to it but I think it did send a very clear message to Lambeth Palace and you know whatever the Secretary of State of Wales wants to do and whoever he wants to write to says more about him than Bishop Andy or the church in Wales I, I do make that point though in the interview um, and in the column associated with it that again there probably is sometimes more work to be done for whatever national institution you are to assert your distinctiveness and that doesn't mean to be forcibly rubbishing anyone else but if you are having people intervening in your province you have to make very clear what that province is and what it does and I think probably over the last few years actually since the time that Barry Morgan retired I don't think you've probably had that from the church in Wales I don't I haven't you know Alec gives very good examples of you know, the nation of sanctuary and so on the work that they do 
perhaps that goes under the surface a bit and people don't really grasp the, the role the church in wheels has had it's a very long-winded answer matt but uh, a very unsurprising letter from simon hart and a, probably a bit more surprising response from justin welby i don't know if alad disagrees with me alad but i agree with you totally of course you do of course you do <laughs> as, as you can imagine a, a welsh-speaking anglican from charles funded i really want the archbishop of canterbury interfering in welsh affairs um yeah. uh, but i'm I was just reminded, and I was sharing this with my Anglican colleagues in the very committee that Bishop Joe chairs, and I was reminding them of the role of Owen Gwynedd, uh, who uh, famously was told uh, not to um, appoint a certain gentleman to be the new Bishop of Anger. That's the irony. And I think it's Asirabati. And um, Owen Gwynedd wrote back to the Archbishop of Canterbury and tell him, it's my business, leave it alone. He even went so far as to consecrate the said bishop in Dublin because he couldn't do it in Wales. And when they told him that he couldn't marry his cousin as well, um, he, he actually got excommunicated. And those awkward Welsh clergy from Bangor Diocese, when Owen Gwynedd died, as a sign of great respect, they buried him under the high altar of Bangor Cathedral. So you have to be mindful of the um, of the awkward stock that all bishops of Bangor and clergy come from. But I think he was, you, you're right, Theo. It, it was a, a wrong call. What was wrong? We're just saying this is an issue for the Church in Wales to resolve. The apology has been given and we're working it through. We, we as Anglicans will deal with it in our own, our own uh, polite way, uh, but I don't think it went down well. Just to pull, pull the thread a little bit on on the way that Theo described that is that it was likely more ignorance than it was in, in, in an intentional intervention. I was I was quite surprised when uh, I can't remember the name of the Conservative MP who guested on Vaughan Roderick's Sunday supplement, but he seemed to have simply no idea what a disestablished what disestablishment was, and that it how would have any effect on the way that um, the UK Parliament could engage with the Church in Wales, and. Just to, again to kind of echo what I think Matt just said, I wonder if if actually the church has a the church in Wales has a problem of visibility, because most people, you know, the, the the proportion of the population of Wales that goes to church is very small, and I wonder even of that population, how many of those people actually will understand about the autonomy of the church in Wales? I would suspect it's probably a small percentage of them. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And I just from my impression, generally, when you because I was, did a lot of research before I spoke to Bishop Andy and Archbishop John Davis stood down earlier this year. You know, I don't know Archbishop John, but I think that happened pretty quietly. And you made the point, obviously, that earlier in the podcast about, you know, the relationship between bishops and the legislature in the House of Lords and that obviously changed for Welsh bishops in 1920 um, and when the church was established. And I think one of the big problems in terms of engagement that we touch on in the interview is how do you get the church in Wales's message out? Do you basically act as a nimble kind of punchy pressure group, spiritual pressure group, which is, I think, what Bishop Andy wants to create. But obviously he'd, he'd love to have as many people as he can 
under that in that tent with him. It's it is difficult, I think, for them to get their message out simply because you know I don't I don't have the latest figures to hand. But as you say, Richard, the, the those like in person worshippers, as Bishop Andy pointed out, is going to be lower after COVID as well. So that that's the whole point now is they've got to first of all work out church members got to work out with new leadership formally what do they stand for when do they speak out and it does require a bit of strategy because stuff like the tweets from bishop joanna wouldn't have happened in a professional organization um they were things like that would not happen and i think we've seen it similarly obviously on a different scale with yes Cymru and things that organizations that are you know might be very well known or well established but they can collapse very quickly and crisis can come if they don't have the measures in place and this is more of a kind of a business strategy political point that you know you need to police a bit better what things are happening work out a strategy but how you engage with them I think that takes a lot of coherent thought you know it does it does require obviously speaking out on issues but Alan's given a few good examples of what the church in Wales and other religious institutions do they also need to get the credit for it and I don't think and obviously because you're such good Christians you don't want to take all the credit and it's not all no it's not about us this is the work of Jesus Christ you know this is this it needs to be we you know I Bishop Andy have done this and this is great work and shows the value of the church and so on so I think there's a there's a there's a, there's a multitude of things they can do better but of course I think once you have a new archbishop I think obviously the tweets might have given the church a bit more of a you know, a bit, bit of PR, you know, no, no publicity is bad publicity, I think, uh, depends, depends <laughs> how you, it depends how you look at it. But the point is, is that it reminds, reminds the people the church in Wales is there, but clearly not everyone uh, at the Wales office anyway. Yeah. Uh, I'm just thinking, though, um, this is an interesting one in terms of perception. You, you know, to be perfectly candid with you, I've, I've operated in the past 20 years with devolution with a thought in my head of saying, for God's sake, don't be noticed. Uh, you, you know the the the, the policy works um, without making that protest and that profile, mm-hmm. and I think um, we paid a price. You're right there. We paid a price for not telling people what we've done and some of the achievements that we have uh, worked out within devolution. I think when you think of it, um, when Rodri Morgan uh, went through 9/11 as a humanist. And he was on the phone with us within a matter of days saying we really need to form the Interfaith Council for Wales. And that now is that well-advanced body, the Faith Communities Forum. And we did an awful lot of things in that generation um, to avoid, you know, breakdown of social cohesion, uh, to avoid a sense of racial injustice very often. And we did it quietly. And... For me, it was always a major achievement when harm was avoided. So the classical example is that we've not had those quarrels, as in in the Midlands of England, because we've done the talking. Mm. Uh, But I think you raise a very good point here about when we move on to the next generation and where those people, you know, myself and others included, who were there right at the beginning are no longer there then you have to turn away from relationality to institutions, to processes, and to a sense of achievement and recording those achievements. And I think probably post-COVID, we'll have to think seriously about that. Because my, 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 my feeling is when COVID and the COVID period is thought through and investigated in Wales, we'll find that we could have done a lot better at certain times 
but also at other times we may have saved hundreds of lives. And that's the sort of narrative that probably the public haven't clocked yet. The way that we close buildings down, the way that we've helped with the vaccination programs. Next week, we'll be going to a black-led church to try and encourage black and African Caribbeans to take the vaccination. Those things are for us the bread and butter of politics, but I guess not many people will know of them. It's a very, it's a very interesting um, aspect of the kind of cross-faith work that takes place in Wales that I think does go underappreciated. I think if you, particularly if you look at the the political conditions in Westminster and in Cardiff, and looking at those as the centres of power, you can see that the the parties in Westminster. Many of them have had difficulties with religion um, and religious aspects. The Labour Party had a, pro a serious problem with anti-Semitism. The Conservative Party had problems with Islamophobia. And even the Liberal Democrats had problems surrounding Tim Farron's faith when he was the leader. There was challenges, political challenges, that came out of having a man of faith as, as your leader. Is it fair to compare the two? Um, because, of course, there's... There is a different set, matter of scale. There's a different matter of history. Um, but it does seem that we, we managed to avoid not all, but many of the same problems here in Wales. And I, I just wonder if you have any thoughts about why that might be. We over the years may have got lots of things wrong and we've got to be candid about that. But the, the issue for me here is that faith should be a means of doing good. And that doing good should be a shared sense of going of doing good rather than just promoting faith. I think faith is less effective when it becomes the object of conversation. And going back to what I was saying to, to Theo earlier, um, that, that sense of, for God's sake, don't be noticed, um, I think has value. Because when faith becomes the, the focus of that conversation, it becomes less powerful. I paradoxically feel the same thing about the Welsh language. Uh, the Welsh language is much better as a means of communication rather than the object of it. Alad, you were very kind earlier to give us a little bit of a history lesson. And, um, <laughs> and I think one of the things that often goes unremarked on, is almost forgotten these days, um, Theo raises it in his piece in The National, is the fact that political Wales only really exists because of religious difference. Um, you know, the, the first... Wales only laws of the modern era came as a result of the rise of nonconformism and ultimately then the disestablishment and disendowment of the Anglican Church in Wales. But it's very interesting to me that the fate of nonconformism, as championed by the then Liberal Party, has largely mirrored the fate of the Liberal Party, which, you know, both of them have been on very, very steep declines over the last century. And I wonder where that leaves the political landscape in Wales, because those cultural and political ties to the Liberal Party that were bound up in nonconformism, have those been broken? Have those been shattered? And some of the older political ties, perhaps to the more formal um, branches of the church that came from the more traditional conservative side of, uh, of Wales, um, have they also, are they still there? Because the church is, seems to be less popular with conservatives at the moment than it has been for a while. <laughs> it's interesting for me because one of the things that we've learned over the past 18 months in particular, is that we have been slow, for example, to embrace the black-led churches, uh, and they have grown enormously in Wales. And 
when I look at the efforts that my evangelical friends, my Catholic friends put into, for example, to supporting to, uh, food banks, where would we be without churches uh, with food banks? And I always think, I think Lloyd George would have been quite pleased with us working at issues like housing and food banks. I don't imagine the churches going wild over temperance anytime soon. We've moved on in those sorts of debates. And the churches have grown and they've grown with, for example, asylum seeker communities and asylum seeker churches. And, you know, it really thrills me that the Christians who came to Wales around 2001, 2002, their children are now Welsh government civil servants. And they have taken their convictions and their principles, but they don't wear the same clothes anymore. So I don't think there'd be a long queue for Band of Hope and those sort of expressions of uh, classical free church movement. But the free church conviction has gone into doing social good big time, and it hasn't waned in that conviction. And Wales would be infinitely poorer if they weren't there. And Richard, just to add to that, and I was, what I pulled out in that in that uh, column that I wrote, I think obviously referring to that I start off with Lloyd George's speech in the Ronda in 1909. Uh, and, you know, he's sort of saying it was religion that introduced Wales to politics. And it's just the journalists sort of interjecting at every sentence with bracketed cheers, bracketed applause, bracket, just absolutely wild. I think he was in Treoki uh, reporting the car. <laughs> Um, a column or uh, a newspaper report from the Cardiff Times at the time, which I found just this week. I think the, the question about, you know, the interest about the decline of, the li- of liberal Wales, I still think for me, and I put it in my column, that the church in Wales really set the foundation for self-governance later in the century, uh, because it just was another branch of distinctiveness. Of course, the University of Wales came uh, a few decades before the church in Wales was disestablished. But you look at the works of Kenneth O'Morgan and other historians, modern Wales really starts probably about 1880. And what you have then is the vital role of the nonconformist movement. You know, I've obviously you know, a huge admirer of Lloyd George and all the stories, the San Vrothen burial case, very, very important uh, for him personally. And the conviction that he always had that, you know, for him as a Welsh-speaking nonconformist was vital to his politics uh, throughout. And I think for me, I actually think things you know the, the punctuated events like you know the university of wales the the church in wales being founded the wales office and so on i think it has culminated really to to where we are and it'll continue to do that i think it set a precedent really for welsh self-governance and welsh confidence and i think obviously you've seen a dip in support for the liberals but that's been transferred well, that was transferred into the labor party and in parts of the conservative party and parts of blight Cymru as well and i think it'll it'll go on and on i think what has diverged of course is is the church in wales as it as it's known it obviously had a very difficult start it was ordinary members that financed the church in wales because obviously it was let's, let's get rid of the church in england so to speak and then they had no money <laughs> they actually had to, to build build it up from the ground. They did that. And there's been crisis over the years. You know, every organisation goes through this. You know, I think actually they probably, uh, it, it, it's, it's earned its own right to speak into society over the last century. And as Bishop Andy says, they're going to have to do that again after yes. what's happened this year. But I think actually the work that, you know, those Anglicans in Wales, those nonconformists did, to set up the church in Wales in 1920. We don't hear enough enough about it. And actually, I think it's, I would say it's 
top three most important events in Welsh history the last 500 years uh, because of what it did for national distinctiveness. See, see, your your memory might be better than mine on this one, but I, I thought on this theme a few years ago when I was asked to speak at a anti-far-right rally in Newport, in Joffrey Square. There were a whole set of young Muslim kids from Newport. And when we came to a stage where we said that um, we're all Welsh in this place and none of us are left behind, they all took their little Welsh dragons out and waved them. And I remembered, I think I remember right, that it was Lloyd George who reflected on how the Newport English, as he put it, scuppered the Cymrydiad movement. And I suspected that if he'd been there that night, seeing that energy of faith across the board, being anti-racist or being proud and strong in terms of values. And many of those BME children now going to newly formed Welsh medium schools in the Newport area. I have a suspicion that that sense of establishment has gone to a place that nobody could imagine. And I think you're right in your analysis that that sense of an institution being Welsh and powerful and speaking out has made a huge difference. And I suspect that night in Newport with all those kids proudly wearing their Welsh flags would not have happened if we didn't have those institutions and that politics that has shaped it. And I think it's been hugely significant. Well, on that lovely, lovely note, um, I think we'll we'll end there. But thank you so much to, to both of you for coming to talk with us this evening. Um, if people want to hear more from you, where can they find you on Twitter, uh, Theo? Uh, it's at T Davis Lewis and I also should say Matt uh, congratulations for passing your driving test as well thank you <laughs> I did it just before I turned 30 that was the only aim I had thank you very much sorry right, don't worry <laughs> <laughs> Aled what about you where can people find you on Twitter yeah I, I, I'm cheap and easy I'm Aled Edwards with the come at the back as in Welsh Aled Edwards come Wonderful. And, uh, thank you very much for coming to speak to us. If you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please do not forget to find us on Medium at Cymru, on Facebook at Cymru, and on Twitter at Blog. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.